so I am um, Appalachian native, born there, only child. Just just started out like living a good life, and then when my parents split up, um, life changed a lot. You know, uh, me and my mom we moved into public housing, what some call the projects, and I was introduced to some some new things at a at a young age. You know, because like living in poverty. The, the people that I've seen that appeared to be successful and powerful and feared and respected were drug dealers. You feel me? Like we'd be outside playing and um, like the ice cream truck might come through or something like that. And, and then you got the, the, the drug dealers on the block. They buying everybody ice cream. They pulling out not some money. They got on their nice clothes, nice shoes, jewelry. You know, it's like looking at them like they were gods. Ask a child, who do you want to be like? And you'll get a variety of answers depending on who they know and who they look up to. It could be a famous personality, a member of their community, or someone in their own family. We want our kids, and ourselves for that matter, to emulate positive role models, people who inspire us to be better humans. Their influence affects the way we view the world around us and ultimately impacts decisions we make on how we conduct ourselves and live our lives. But what about children who come from communities where universally respected role models are few and far between? It's not uncommon for children raised in poverty to look up to those who flaunt what they don't have, who entice them with tangibles a curious child could only dream of. But nothing good can come from affluence sourced by crime. Can it? For one man growing up in the rural ghetto, he was drawn into a world of crime, quick cash, addiction, and incarceration. His story is about hard knocks, about finding unlikely role models in unlikely places, and about second chances. It's called Change Agent, and our story starts here. From the studios of Home Productions, I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is Impactually. Philip Cooper was born in Rutherford County, North Carolina. Raised in a single-parent home, he grew up in public housing where drug dealers were his heroes. To young Philip, they were the epitome of success. So like all my life, I just wanted to be a gangster. I did play basketball for some years, play AAU and school ball. Um, and even with playing ball, I wanted to be like Allen Iverson. And anybody that knows about Allen Iverson knows he was more of like the hip-hop culture uh, uh, like some would even have called him a thug, but that was the that was the culture that I identified with the most. Rutherford County is located along the southeastern foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in western North Carolina. This beautiful piece of the first in flight state, named for famed aviation pioneers Wilbur and Orville Wright, saw much of its early economic development from the textile mills starting in the early 1880s. After a century of prosperity, the industry took a downturn, and the problem was twofold, progress and politics. First came automation, which increased manufacturing productivity, so there wasn't the need for as many laborers to produce the same output. And then came NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which created a free trade zone between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. NAFTA eliminated tariffs on goods manufactured outside the United States. This allowed American companies to outsource cheap labor overseas and import their own products tax-free. 
In the 1990s, the intersection of automation and NAFTA were a boon for some industries, but not for the middle-class labor market. In Appalachia in particular, textile mills laid off large numbers of their workforce, or they closed the mills altogether. Hundreds of thousands were left unemployed, and a generation, Philip's generation, grew up in the middle of a localized economic decline. I started getting in trouble, though, at an early age because it was just, it, I didn't know anything else but the hood. The American ghetto, or hood, can be roughly traced to the end of the civil rights movement. First came restrictive zoning that prohibited certain racial groups, predominantly black, from living on blocks where most of the residents were white. Then there was redlining, where banks and insurance companies denied loans to applicants who lived in an area determined to be a poor financial risk. Ghettos grew where once thriving businesses employing an entire community had moved on. Where homes were abandoned, infrastructure was neglected, and city services, grocery stores, and health care were scarce or unreliable. Not much different than today. And ghettos aren't only in the cities. Rural ghettos may be less recognizable than their urban counterparts, but they share the same dilemmas. Unemployment, gang activity, drive-by shootings, and drug violence. The hood is not one ethnicity, and it has no religion other than itself. It's a place where harmony coexists on the brink of adversity. Opportunities are hard won, and breaking the cycle of poverty doesn't come easy. Oftentimes, crime, corruption, and a culture of subsistence are considered necessary evils to survive. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a kid in high school, and um, and then I went to, went to treatment at an early age and went to a state-funded treatment program. Got out of there, didn't make no changes. Um, tried to go to college, but I wasn't really applying myself because, like, uh, I wasn't really practicing a recovery program or anything. I was, I was just saying I was going to do better. You know, talk is cheap. Right. right. So I ended up back in the streets, had another kid, um, got into the gang activity, um, trying to sell drugs, do drugs. And it was like for me, that was one of the things that, that showed me that I had an issue was because where I come from, you sell the dope. You don't you, you, you don't do the dope. Yeah, that's that's against the code. I mean, and it ain't even no secret. I mean, the notorious B.I.G. put it in a song. He has a song called The Ten Crack Commitments, <laughs> you know, and one of them, I forget the exact number, but it said never get high on your own supply. You know, so I was one of those folks that was that was actually uh, battling, you know, addiction, struggling with addiction while I was trying to sell. And it wasn't and it wasn't many people like me back then because that's where that stigma comes from. Right. Philip started using marijuana at age 12 and by his teenage years was selling drugs. He was first charged with a felony and later received a trafficking conviction that landed him in a North Carolina prison from 2008 to 2011. Yeah, and I ended up going to uh, prison. But prison saved my life, though. That's what saved my life. Once behind bars, vestiges of an inmate's former life don't disappear. For many, drug addiction and undiagnosed or untreated mental health issues often complicate an already confusing and stressful landscape. Yeah, there's a lot of people going through a lot of stuff on the yard. You feel me? Yeah, prison is like that. I mean, it's people that's living their life in there, though. You dig? And so um, I, I was getting in trouble at first when I went to prison. I ain't even going to lie. When I first got on the yard, I was I was being a knucklehead, you know, and it's, 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 it was a it was a shock for me because I was only what, 20, 22 years old and I knew I had years to do. But then I started, you know, 
being around some people that have been in there a long time who were, you know, respectable people who, who, who would, would kind of coach me on doing time, like, you know, stay out of trouble, you know. Those respectable people were part of a North Carolina prison program called New Direction. The program trains inmates to become peer support specialists, who then help fellow inmates navigate the prison system and stay clean while incarcerated. The belief is that recovery is possible for those with behavioral health challenges and that there's value in building a mutually beneficial relationship between individuals with similar life experiences, individuals who have experienced mental health, substance abuse disorders, and trauma, have a unique capacity to support each other based on these shared experiences. These were mentors of a different kind, and one made an impact on Philip. His name is Kinkerman. Whenever I was in there, you know, he he just made a statement like, hey, man, you watch out for some of them boys you went on the yard. Man, I ain't trying to tell you what to do, but just watch, you know, just give me a little wisdom. The program would change Philip's life. And they have what's called peer counselors. They're incarcerated right there with you they're in the dorm they work for the program they um you know co-facilitate groups they do conflict resolution in the dorms the reality of it is it's people like them that that contribute to the development of people like me and you can tell especially in there like you might see like a little uh, a young buck that just got on the yard and you could just speak to him you know on the yard just speak to him like what's up bro you know what I'm saying? And that'll, that'll, that can change somebody's whole day, just speaking to them. Empathy and kindness are rare within prison walls, and so the experience of having another inmate reach out to help was humanizing. In fact, it was life-altering to Philip. He worked through conflict in the yard and overcame his addiction. He, too, became a peer specialist with New Direction while serving the rest of his sentence. On his release, he was able to move in with his dad, who provided him with all that was necessary to start life again outside those prison walls. Unfortunately, the vast majority of inmates do not have that kind of support waiting for them. According to civilrights.org, every year nearly 700,000 people are released from American prisons, and almost two-thirds of them are arrested again within three years. Once released, Formerly incarcerated people face a myriad of barriers to successful re-entry into society. They're not allowed to vote. They have little access to education. They have few job opportunities and are ineligible for public benefits, public housing, and student loans. These obstacles make it practically impossible for those returning home to be engaged, responsible, productive citizens. Andrea Morris is a duly licensed clinical social worker and addiction specialist in Asheville, North Carolina. She's passionate about wellness in all forms and wants her students to use their lived experiences to motivate the concept of encouraging recovery by example. Because you can't support a community you don't understand. The path to recovery is not a linear one. In fact, sometimes relapse is a part of recovery. A lot of folks in the recovery community, and when I say recovery, it's both mental health and addictions, will say that they've hit their true bottom. We hear that a lot in in the recovery world. I've hit my rock bottom. And naturally, only an individual knows what their rock bottom is. 
your rock bottom might look very different than the person's next to you. It might be just that you got overdrawn in your checking account one time and someone else's rock bottom is that they've been to detox and rehab 37 times. They've been incarcerated multiple times. They've lost custody of their children. They've burned every bridge. They have no virtual um, supports in their lives and they're living in the woods in a tent. That still might not be someone's rock bottom. And that's why we go back to, there is not a prescription or a prescribed definition for recovery because it is truly not a linear path and it's not unique to any one person. It's very personal. Change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. It's a Tony Robbins quote. Being an addiction specialist, Andrea has served as a peer educator, trainer, and supervisor for many years. That was Philip's goal. He enrolled at his local community college and took classes. He worked at places like the Western North Carolina YMCA, as well as local health and recovery centers for experience. He tried to register as a certified substance abuse counselor, but because of his criminal background, was denied. In North Carolina, a peer support or a peer support specialist candidate must be self-described as in recovery for one year. They must complete 40 hours of state-approved peer support specialist training in classroom hours. They must then complete an additional 20 related hours. Once this 60 hours is completed, they can apply for a certification as a peer support specialist with references and proof of training. It was in an Asheville area community college offering this program where Andrea and Philip first met. Philip Cooper applied for a space in one of these trainings about 10, maybe 12 years ago. He was accepted to the training and Philip and I entered into a relationship of student and teacher. We immediately, on the first day of meeting, determined that once the 40 hours was over and once he completed his certification as a peer support specialist, we would then be colleagues. So we knew that our role as teacher and student was important, but it would be fairly short-lived. Right. And, And a friendship would bloom from that. A friendship did, in fact, bloom from that, as well as a reliable and trusted um, colleague. Can you describe what Philip looks like? Ah, yeah. Okay. Let's see. Um, Well, he's big. He's a lot bigger than me. (laughs) And that's not saying much. (laughs) May I start by talking about what he he feels like? Oh, please do. So when Philip enters a room, it gets very crowded. His energy is big. And I'm talking crowded in a good way. He is activating. Philip is a conduit for positive energy. So when Philip enters the space, the energy gets both lifted and there's a focus. Physically, he takes up a lot of space. He's a big dude. Um, Philip is an African-American male. He, his neck is probably as big as my waist. He is, he's strong. He's muscular. He's a beautiful man. So Philip has a big presence, both physically and vibrationally. 
he leaves his vibrational signature everywhere he goes. And it's a beautiful one. It's large, it's positive. And I don't think I've ever been around Philip and not felt better for it. I've only seen him in video and in uh, photographs. And one of the things that struck me, and I'm not an eyes noticing kind of a person, he has got some of the brightest eyes I've ever seen. Philip is bright eyed and he has one of the most beautiful smiles I can, I have ever seen. His joy is absolutely contagious and he wears it on every square inch of, of his face. And the fact that you can see that smile through that ginormous beard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That contagious joy not only fills Philip, but it also radiates to every person he meets. I went over and beyond to help people returning from prison just because it's a a passion. It's a ministry. It's my calling. It's my purpose driven life. And I would just do it. And it started to get the momentum in the community. And people was like wondering, like, who is this guy? You know what I'm saying? And that's when the networking started. With his personal network growing deeper, Philip became a pillar in his community, an ally focusing on societal reentry after prison. I don't think his work, I don't think Philip's work ever stops. You know, a lot of us, we think about like work-life balance. I get the sense that that's not the way Philip views it. My sense is that it's more about work-life integration. Philip is on call 24-7. When someone is set to be released, they need a plan in place, and that's what counselors do. And that needs to take place in real time, not when it's convenient to the counselor. There's never a wrong time or place to contact a change agent. I was at a wedding. Somebody was at the wedding. It was like, hey, so-and-so getting out. Can you help? I heard you can help. I look them up on, on my phone. I meet because I told you this is my calling. While at the wedding, you hear me? Yep. At the wedding. Yep. Dressed up in, yeah. in, in all your good Sunday clothes. There you are working. Yeah. yeah. Ain't nobody doing no cha-cha yeah. slide. Let me look this up real quick. <laughs> <laughs> but I go and I look. I go and I look. I go and I look up the... Uh, the individual, right? I look him up and I see when he's getting out. I see what prison he's at. I call the prison. I ask, you know, who's the case manager? I go on the, the DPS the employee directory. I look up the email and I and I email and I say, hey, we're here to support the reentry plan and please work with us. We can help crickets. I never heard from the case, never heard from the case workers. You know, the the, the prisons are short staffed. Um, and, and so the case managers, a lot of times they're, they're doing their best or overworked, whatever it may be, but there's a shortage. There's a staff shortage, right? That impacts the reentry plans. And so if a person doesn't have things put together, you know, they get out, they might not have a social security card, might not have an ID. For Andrea and Philip, it's a story all too common and all too real. You'd be surprised at a number of people where that becomes the barrier, I haven't had an ID in years or it got stolen or it got lost while I was incarcerated. They didn't give it back to me. Happens all too often. It's just so many different things that people don't take into consideration that will cause a person to panic because you can't get a job without two forms of identification. Some people can't get food stamps in North Carolina. You know, we have a, a, a ban on food stamps. Like if you have a certain drug charge, you can't get food stamps for the rest of your life. Oh, my God. That's a fact. In North Carolina, certain drug charges disqualify you indefinitely from getting food stamps. And so those folks that we have returning to society, we have to make sure that they get 
access to like the food pantries, make sure they have food, you know, and then if, if they don't have those other things in place, do you think they're even thinking about mental health follow ups and all the other things? Because you're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. Right. Because it don't matter how many resources a, a county has. If, if the more the resources can make it even harder for the individual. We followed up on the wedding story and what happened after Philip called the inmate's case manager, hoping to make plans before his release. So a month and a half, two months go by. He calls me on Wednesday of last week. He had been released on that Monday. So by the time he gets to me, he's he's actually staying in a motel where there's activity that don't need to go on. So I stopped everything I was doing that day, go pick this brother up. You know, get him a comprehensive clinical assessment, get him safely housed in the Oxford house, which is a, a sober living house. You know, got him some clothes, took him to Walmart, got him some food, you know, just different items that were needed. You talk about taking him for a, for a mental health evaluation. Mm-hmm. You take about taking him to Walmart. You talk about putting him in a new hotel. You just listed off a whole bunch of things that I was like, cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. That cannot be coming out of your pocket. We, we have a cap, $700 per person that comes home from prison. We can spend up to $700 on them, right? It's a okay. $700 cap. That $700 needs to cover all the basic needs from clothing to toiletries, food to housing, a means of communication to a means of transportation. That stipend won't last long, so there's added pressure on the now-released inmate to find employment before the money runs out. Would you even need that entire $700 cap if you were able to get started sooner and there was less um, fixing the situation and there was more building the situation? So here in Buncombe County, we have a lot of uh, halfway houses and the halfway houses aren't free. The halfway houses can range anywhere from six to eight hundred dollars a month. And that blows people's mind when I tell them that when they get out and they go in a halfway house, there are different programs that can like cover a month of housing, but that's it. I mean, they got to be paying like after that, that month done ran out. It's up to them to get a job and and be p- making their own payments. And I'm not really for that either, because like the reality of it is there's a lot of guys that get out that aren't work ready. At the end of the day, if we want people to go um, be gainfully employed, you know, and do right. We need to also make sure that there's work readiness processes in place. But when they get out of prison, if they go into these halfway houses and they're under the gun for a payment, they're not thinking about going to some HRD class. They're trying to go get the first job that'll hire them and pay them so they can get this halfway house manager off their back. They're and panicking. We, yeah, exactly. They're exhausted. They don't want to go to no recovery meetings. They're tired. They want to go home and, and get a pizza from Little Caesars and go to bed. Yep. I've seen it. I see it. I've seen it all the time, Brooke. I see it. And that's why we don't play around. Like I spoke at funerals. You feel me? My passion, my passion comes from like real life experience. Yo, like I, I keep a picture up on this desk behind me of one of my good friends that's no longer with. I got like three obituaries. You feel me? That I keep out in my cubicle, you know, just so people know, like, like it's, it's this is real life. Like, that's what I try to tell these people. Like, you don't want to take your recovery serious. You can die these days. You know, people ain't just relapsing no more. Like they, they really, they dead. You know, with all this fentanyl and stuff like that going on out there, you don't take care of your recovery. You're not guaranteed to make it back, you know. But when you look at when you look at the numbers, though, my friend, it costs like anywhere between what, 30 and thirty six thousand dollars a year to incarcerate a person. So the 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 services that we're providing, it, it's nowhere near what it would cost to incarcerate this person. So do we want to invest our money into addressing social drivers that impact health or do we want to invest our tax dollars into incarcerating the person? You feel me? 
which one? Which one would you choose? With finite resources and infinite people in need, Philip Cooper is revolutionizing the bridges between recovery and prison reentry as an agent of change when we come back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Impactually. The team at Hum Productions works hard to leverage our episodes with the incredible and inspiring impact of our guests. If you want to support the show and be more in the know of what's coming up with Impactually, you're invited to support us on Patreon. Whether it's branded swag, earning producer-level credits, gaining access to scripts, or learning what's happening behind the scenes, you can get those and more if you go to patreon.com forward slash impactually. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually. Philip Cooper is a man who believes in second chances. He's a passionate advocate for people recently released from incarceration, often battling addiction, an unfortunate experience Philip knows all too well. Frustrated by the current way things are done, Philip is innovating the reentry program with every partnership, every networking connection he can find, in essence, becoming a change agent. So what ended up happening was Whenever I, I, I'm noticing that I'm having to keep doing this, keep doing this, why don't I create something myself? And he did. Philip created Operation Gateway, a nonprofit to help formerly incarcerated people successfully reenter their community. Through Operation Gateway, Philip tackles an overwhelming list of never ending tasks. You know, addressing the needs, the social drivers that impact health of the returning citizens from, you know, continuity of care, health, uh, medical, behavioral health, mental health, you know, making sure that they're having follow ups, making sure they have a ride to their first appointments, making sure they have bus passes, making sure they are familiar with the meeting schedule for the recovery meetings, uh, connecting them to the career centers. We don't just give them a list of jobs. We, we kind of hold their hand during that first month. And um, it's just a real wraparound services model. Like I told you about the gentleman that we served last week, getting him connected to get a comprehensive clinical assessment. So if we would have been able to get to him before he got out, we would have scheduled everything. So like that, that first day could have could have easily been like uh, uh, go apply for your food stamps, go to a recovery meeting and then take you to see your son that you hadn't seen in a while. Instead of us scrambling to try to figure out this and figure out that, we could have already had that. Um, the the clothing, we could have already had that. We could have had his sizes to have him some boxers and socks and linens and stuff like that. We could have already had him in a, a in a bed at a halfway house. Like these are all things that could have, like if we would have com- been able to communicate with the case manager before they were released from prison, all of that stuff could have been done, fam. Easy. It's nothing. Like to go to Walmart and pick up boxers and socks and a couple of a packs of t-shirts some sweatpants and a couple of pair of jeans piece of cake it's easy but it just requires the system because i'm not trying to cast the system to the wayside because prison is needed like i'm not the one saying abolish the prisons because remember i told you prison saved my life mm-hmm. you know because i was i was i was up to no good going yeah. nowhere fast i'm talking about re-entry reform the re-entry process and it's not rocket science like no 
it is not like this this connecting with the, the community-based organizations makes the case manager's job easier. Easier, but not complete. And it's an impossible mission for Philip to accomplish alone, which is why Andrea sees him as a relationship builder, cultivating a community which can help those in need. I think that people are deemed change agents by Philip himself. He's constantly making contacts, reaching out to people. Hey, can you meet me in the park? Can you meet me at the coffee shop? Can you meet me at the fire station? I want to get a picture with you. I want to do an interview with you. I want to give you a change agent hat or a t-shirt. You know, it wasn't just that long ago that we, we needed tribe to survive without it whatever large animals or beasts or dinosaurs or whatever larger than us, it was, they were looking to survive too. And the only difference is now is that while the tiger may not be in the room, we're still as at risk if we are not connected and tribe. So connection is as important in many ways as water, shelter, food, those basic needs. So connection and community. One of the most valuable ways we can help isn't through some massive, expensive, systematic change. It's simply through the way we talk about reentry and addiction, about giving others a second chance, like the chance Philip was given. Because so many people are, are suffering in silence. When we recover out loud, it keeps people from suffering in silence. When yeah. we talk about these things, we're opening up, but knowing who they can talk to about it, right? It's one of the many hopes that Philip and Andrea share. You know, the... One of my missions in the world is to break down the stigma that's associated with mental health and substance use concerns. You can't look out in your community and touch anyone who has not been touched by mental health or addiction, whether personally or through family or through someone they love. So I think one of the more broader things we can do is start a conversation in our community, find the place that feels energizing, that feels alive for for you and get involved on that level and start having these conversations. As far as the corporate or the business level, I think the message is, is this. We are in favor of second chances. We hope that you are too. Chances are you've been given a second chance. That's what I would say to a company whose policy is a no tolerance. It can be tough for companies, especially smaller companies. But what I'm seeing as a trend is companies being more open, companies removing their policies that are, we don't hire convicts. I know there's one particular company here, and I I heard the CEO say one time when somebody asked the question, what if a peer calls out sick, implying that there was a relapse? And the the CEO said, you treat it like anybody else. I don't want to know why they're out. Mm -hmm. If they've got the flu or if they've had a relapse, it doesn't matter to me. They've got sick days. They can use them. She was really clear. It's none of our business. Get well and come back. And hopefully you'll do it before your sick days run out. But if all the elements don't line up just right, it doesn't matter how many sick days one may have accrued. If someone stumbles out of the starting gate, they may never catch up. Someone comes out of jail and there's not a plan. Nine times out of 10, they're going to go back exactly to the situation that put them there in the first place or that created the circumstances for for them to be there. Whether it's an abusive situation at home, whether it's poverty, 
whether it's, um, you know, ongoing trauma or ongoing need, if they physical needs can't be met, chances are they, they feel like they got to go out and do a crime. They got to get their needs met. Our will to survive is strong. So we're going to do whatever we got to do. It's why Philip is still haunted by the inmate who was recently released from prison, the one he first heard about at the wedding. It took three days for them to connect. But for Philip, three days can mean the difference between reentry, reincarceration, or death. We should not have been catching him after the fact. We, we could have had that man connected. And so I'm holding on to his story, you know, especially as I've been starting to get involved with more uh, national leaders. Like, if I could talk to the governors of every state and the decision makers, I would make it so plain for them to where they would just, they would make it happen. But it's a no-brainer. Like, when you look at having somebody from the outside that's boots on the ground doing the work in the community, it would be they would follow up with us when they have somebody that's getting out within 90 days Maybe we can come up there and meet with that person in person, maybe share a little bit about our story so that they know that we've been incarcerated. We know what it's like. There's no judgment that immediately establishes rapport, assess their needs, document what we're going to need to follow up on, follow up on as much as we can, get releases signed, follow up on as much as we can while they're in there, then welcome them home, meet them at wherever, get their cell phone set up, take them to the grocery store to get them a week's worth of grocery, apply for food stamps. For Andrea, that's what it means to be a change agent. Anyone who's challenging the norm, who's challenging the way that we've done things forever and ever because that's the only way to do them, I think is a change agent. You could become a change agent just by asking one challenging question or by challenging one particular belief system. And Philip has challenged many people rather by asking, well, how come it's done this way? Or... Why is it this way and not another way? Or why can't we try this? That's being a change agent in my mind. Philip is able to say, hey, man, I've been where you are. I walked out of these same doors however long ago. I didn't have an ID either. Mm-hmm. Here's what I did. What do you think is going to work for you? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, been a long time coming, though. You know, it's been some ups and downs. You know, there's been some relationships that that didn't make it because accountability. You know, I hold people accountable the same way that that people taught me. I learned the game from the OGs. You know, people taught me how to hold others accountable. People taught me how to love. You know, and being a man, you know, it ain't always it ain't always about uh, not saying just being a man, but being a change agent. It's not about worried about people's feelings. You know, uh, a growth don't happen in no comfort zones. You did. Any of us can be agents of change in our communities. We're all capable of substantive change, but transformative change requires dedication by those who are not only willing to challenge the system, but allow themselves to be challenged. It requires building empathy and trust with those who have differing views or values and working towards understanding one another, particularly when we disagree. To follow Philip's progress, you can find him on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We have links provided in our show notes. And if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or by texting your zip code to 43578 to find help near you. Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with Home Productions. 
Our web address is hum, that's H-U-M-M, productions.com. Financial support for the show is provided by JLB Images and listeners like you who support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guests, change agent Philip Cooper and Andrea Morris. You can find more information about them and the work that they do from links we've provided in our show notes. Special thanks to the band Gangsta Grass for their song, You Can Never Go Home Again. We have a link to their website and social media in our show notes, and their music is available on all major streaming platforms. When I left the home I haven't been to in the longest, let a life by the sword called to fall upon it. The kites flew, there was nobody left to correspond with. Familiar faces either pass on a flip, so there's not much left for me to do except dip. And our team, Christine Murdoch, senior producer and editor, Jacob Motz, head writer, James Nash, Director of Operations. Director of Production, Jack Bechtold. Sound Engineering by Andy Shoemaker. Music Curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative. Richard Cassis of Spark Inc. for Digital Artwork. Andrew Sachs for Our Original Music. And I'm Brooke Bechtold, Host, Executive Producer, and Creator. Subscribe and listen to us on the iHeart app, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We would love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think would be great to have on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary episode. Everyone has a story. Share. Share.